The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 3, verse 20. Mark 3, verse 20 through 35 is where we will be this morning, and we pick up our study of Mark's gospel with a somewhat perplexing passage. Mark, remember, does not write in a purely chronological manner, in that he write, he's, re, he's not recording the story of Jesus' life necessarily uh, in, in, in accordance with time. Like, this event happened, and then he traveled here, and then he traveled here, and he's not always recording things uh, chronologically. He's also not just, like, bouncing around from, like, his childhood to his teens, back to his childhood to his adult life. He's not jumping around, per se, like that. Rather, he is writing for impact. He writes in such a way to get his point across. He's recording Jesus's life and his ministry to make the case for the deity of this man. And he puts Jesus before us really in every scene, in every passage that he records it. uh, He puts Jesus before us to force us to ask this question, who is this man? And in today's passage, he uses a rather interesting writing tactic. It's the first time in the gospel he's going to use it uh, in several uh, coming passages that we'll see uh, in the weeks ahead. But he writes in such a way that he makes a sandwich for us. Now, some of y'all may be a little hungry and you're like, oh, I could use a sandwich right now. Well, we don't have sandwiches on our little cart back there, but we do have coffee. And so if you uh, didn't get your coffee on the way in, you can go back and get some there in the middle of the message. But all that to be said, the first and last parts of this, the first and last uh, sections are like the bread. And here it's Jesus's family who are looking for him that form the bread or the, the parentheses, the outer portions, whereas the middle portion is some pungent meat and cheese. What we'll see here in, a, in, in, the, in the text is it's uh, not just some bland old ham and American cheese. It's some pungent stuff. And so as we bite into this sandwich and as we consider its flavors, we are really forced to decide who Jesus is. We're forced to decide who Jesus is. Either Jesus is who he says he is and who his miracles prove him to be, or he is something far worse See, Jesus cannot be just a mere historical figure. He cannot be a simple moral man or just a thoughtful teacher. No, his teaching and his miracles require something much more than that. So, look with me now in Mark 3.20 and let's take a bite into this passage. Listen here as I read from God's word for us. Then he, that's Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word for God's people. My aim today in preaching this passage and taking this before us is very simple. By the time we finish considering these verses and walk out these doors, that you will have a settled conviction in your mind and heart about Jesus. Now we're mindful that only the Spirit can do this through the power of His Word, amen? But we we must decide today who Jesus is. We must decide who Jesus is as we consider this passage here before us. So let's turn our attention now to verse 20 and consider his impact. Let's consider the impact that Jesus is having on those around him. You remember from the uh, last week, from the previous passage that Jesus has appointed and equipped his disciples. They're named for us in the, in the preceding verses here as he's come off the mountain. He's had a crazy uh, a season of preaching and miracles as many are being healed. He's now come off and it says in verse 20 that he went home literally to a house. So likely he's back at Peter's house where we've seen him return to, which has uh, kind of been his base of operations, hasn't it? He just has taken over Peter's household uh, kind of intrusively, hasn't he? So much so that whenever he comes back there, the crowds just kind of heap upon him. So much so that, look at the verse, what does it say? That they couldn't even eat. They couldn't, they couldn't even eat. It's, it's, it's crazy, you know, he's back home and what, guess what happens? People are flocking to him and they prevent him from even eating. And I love this detail in, in Mark. Mark includes a lot of little details like this. And what I can just picture here is uh, the apostle Peter in his old age uh, recording these things to the younger Mark whom he was discipling, re- recalling to mind these events as he's telling Mark about them. And, and you can just almost hear in Peter's mind as he's, as he's talking about it. And then we came back to my house and man, we were so, hungry, right? We were so hungry. We were exhausted and then people were all around and we just, we, 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 we didn't even have any time to eat. You ever been so busy like that in the workday? Like your, your, jo- your to-do list is just so busy that you, you almost forget to eat or you do and you're just like, I don't, I don't even know when I have time. I can't slow down and even just to make a sandwich. And that, that's, that, see, making a meal in these days was a lot harder, you know, we can get it delivered, we can throw something in the microwave, we can whip up a sandwich or something really quick, but it's more of an ordeal. And they were very busy, so much so that they could not even sit down to eat. But the word of the chaos, the word of all these things happened, what had it gotten back to? It had gone back to Nazareth, to his family, to his mother, his brothers, if you want to see who they are and list it out. Mark 6, 3 lists their names for him. But they, the, this word had gotten back, and so they travel from Nazareth to Capernaum to seize him. You see that? Look at, look at in verse 21. They came out to seize him, like to forcibly remove him from the situation. You can, you can imagine how concerned they are about their son, about their brother. Like, word has gotten back. What, what has happened to my boy? 
What has happened to my brother? He's, in, in their estimation, look, he's, like, he's out of his mind. Like all these crowds, all these people, like what happened to Jesus? And they're worried, they're concerned. They think, is, 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 he, is he gone loony? Is he, a, is he a lunatic? Is he, is he crazy? All these people are coming. All these things are happening to him. And this is a question that we must reckon with ourselves. Has Jesus really gone crazy? As we've read through this, these first three chapters of Mark, is Jesus really who he says he is? As we consider his impact and all the lives that have been changed, is he, is he just some sort of crazy man that everybody is flocking to see? And this isn't a new question for us. This is a question that people have been asking they're asking it in the passage and really ever since. And you may be familiar with a, a, a British apologist, an author from the past century named C.S. Lewis. Anybody familiar with him? Read his books. And if you have children, read his Chronicles of Narnia series to your children. And uh, it will not only be a, a blessing to them, but also to you as you read it. But he has a very popular book called Mere Christianity. Anybody in the house read it? Anyone familiar with it? It's very good. I would highly recommend it. And he, he has this classic quote that really can't be improved upon uh, in, uh, in determining just who Jesus is. Now, he's not necessarily expositing this passage here, but it lines up so nicely. It is such a classic quote that it can't be improved upon. So I want to read it for you. It's going to be on the screen. It's long, but I want you to hear it as I read it. Answering the question, is Jesus a lunatic? He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Beloved, as we consider the impact of Jesus' teaching and ministry up to this point, what are we left to conclude? People are in awe of what Jesus is saying. He is teaching like one with authority, unlike anyone who had ever come across the face of the earth. In his teaching, false teachers are exposed as imposters. At his teaching, demons are fleeing at the very sight of him. Whole towns are being healed of disease. People who could not walk are now walking. People who were blind are now seeing. More importantly, sins are being forgiven and faith is being freely given everywhere he goes. Is he really out of his mind, beloved? Is Jesus really crazy? Let us consider his impact. Let us consider also his influence. 
As we see this, the, the scene kind of shifts where uh, who's now approaching Jesus. Not only are we considered as impact, but let's consider his influence now or where his authority comes from. His family had come from Nazareth. Now the scribes are coming up from Jerusalem to attack him. They're coming to accuse him of being possessed by Satan or this title of those days, Beelzebul, which is literally king or ruler or prince of demons. In other words, they're accusing him of being a liar. They're accusing him of, of, of lying about where he comes from. You're not the son of God. You do these miracles not based on God, but from another source. You're from Satan, as if it's there where his authority to cast out demons comes from. See, they know that his, his power, they know that the things that he is saying and doing are not of this world, that he is unlike anyone else, but they are not willing to accept the fact that he is the son of God. And so what do they accuse him of there? Of being from Satan. Now, do you think Jesus will stand for any of that nonsense? No? You know what's really ironic here is that they accuse him from being from Satan and yet what have we seen multiple times up to this point? That who have the demons revealed who Jesus is? He's the son of God. The irony is crazy. They're, they're saying, no, this man is from God. He is the son of God. And they're saying, no, you're not. You're, you're actually from Satan. And so they come, they're attempting to discredit Jesus in front of this large crowd that's gathered. They're saying, they're trying to look good. They're trying to, to discredit him from being who he says he is. And what does he do in verse 23? He calls them closer. You know, he shows them patience and he now begins to teach and show the errors in their accusation through, what does it say? Through a parable, through a story that teaches uh, a profound point for those who believe and veils the spiritual point to those who disbelieve who are unbelievers. And there, there's more coming of that in the next chapter, actually. We're about to get into a section on parables. But it's ridiculous to think of any winning strategy that involves division, isn't it? This is what Jesus just comes back. He, he, he just shows the illogical nature of their accusation. Like what team, what kingdom, what home can succeed if their strategy is one of division? Like, hey, I know we're on the same team, but why don't you like cast out like some of our people and like you kick some people off the team? And that's like, that's gonna bring success? That's gonna bring unity? No, he, he points it out that this is ridiculous. If, even if Jesus was influenced by Satan, then he's still losing. He's still losing, but either way, Satan's done for but especially more because Jesus, as he points out, is the stronger one. Notice the, what he, how we, in his little parable here, he calls it the strong man, that's Satan, the plunderous goods, those held captive by him. And so Jesus here is pointing out that he is the stronger one. Rest in that today, beloved. Rest in that, even if in, in anything else here, that Jesus is the stronger one over your situation. Jesus is the stronger one over all things on heaven, in heaven and on earth. He's come to plunder his house. He's come to set them free. Jesus has come to set them free. Satan's reign is, what does it say? Coming to an end. And isn't that news of glorious freedom? Isn't, don't we who believe see that as news of glorious freedom? of the hope that Jesus has come as the stronger one to set the captives free. He is not from Satan. He is not uh, here to, to divide the house. He is here to destroy the dominion of darkness. 
And in verse 28 then, he, 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 he sets against this glorious news of freedom, this very sober warning in 28 through 30, doesn't he? It's very sobering. It's, it's a sin that he's warning these scribes. You've, you're coming dangerously close to a terrible sin. And he has to stop them in their tracks. He's saying, truly I say to you, literally, amen. I am telling you this, the truth. And there's lots of debate and confusion about what Jesus is saying here, right? About the unforgivable sin. Are you familiar with that? You've heard that term before? The eternal sin, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin here. And so he's saying, look, look here in verse 28 again. He's, he's putting up against, against one another. He's saying the hope. Look at the hope of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Isn't that an amazing truth? Here, don't, don't miss this point here. Don't miss the hope-filled point. Whatever sin, whatever sin you have committed that you recognize as sin and you bring to Christ and you repent of, whatever you may have done yesterday, whatever is in your past, whatever is from years ago that you think is so bad. Look what Jesus is saying here. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Even if you've said some vile things before the Lord, even if, you, even if you lived a life that took his name in vain, even if you've committed what you think is the worst of worst sins, Jesus is saying this morning that it can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. You just need to come repent, believe. Today, he will receive you with mercy if you come and just uncover what Christ has covered with his blood at the cross. All sins. But verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Some weighty words, aren't they? Some weighty, weighty words. So what exactly is this? What exactly is this? Are we, are we guilty of committing it? Has some, someone in here, maybe, maybe you feel like, have I committed this? Maybe you're feeling the, the guilt of it. So what exactly is he referring to here? Well, I love this summary. I want to put it on the screen because I found it helpful. If you want, you can pull out your phone. It's kind of long, but I want you just to see this here uh, as, as a way to kind of hopefully bring some clarity onto exactly what this is. He says this, the unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. That's the sin we're talking about, that we knowingly, willingly, and persistently accuse the power and work and authority of Christ to come from Satan himself and not from the Holy Spirit. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And to live a life of it, to be persistent in it, to be so hardened and so rejecting of the work and power and authority of Jesus that you've gone not just to uh, kind of uh, just dismissing it, but outright or attributing it to the power of the enemy. And so here's some clarifying things. Here, uh, number one, it is a sin of full knowledge. This isn't something that you can be guilty of and have no idea. You understand it is a full knowledge. You understand the gospel. You understand who Jesus is and you deny it. It is not just something that you stumble into. It is an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
This is a lifetime of this. This is a lifetime of this. All the way to death, rejecting the work of God, the work of Jesus Christ as the work of Satan. It's a verbal act. It's something that you, that you say. It's something that comes out of, of, the, of the, the, the depths of your heart, so much so that you say it. It's a willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. It is a, it, it's not just a, a, a something, again, that, that you just kind of come by, but this is outright willful rebellion and a life of it, and a life of it. It is rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in unbelief. Our unbelieving, sinful, rebellious hearts that have become so hardened to the work of Christ. And here, find some hope in these last two. It is a sin that a Christian cannot commit. If you find yourself in Christ today, the power of the Holy Spirit, you can rest assured that this is not something that you can somehow stumble into with one wrong word that will somehow undo or break the power of Christ's atoning work for you on the cross. You don't, you don't hold that power. You, you don't hold the ability to sin in such a way that you could deny the very power that put Christ, kept Christ on the cross and caused him to rise from the dead. You can't commit it. And here... Here, it is a sin not committed by one who is concerned that he or she may have committed it. If you think, man, have I done this? Let me just assure you that you cannot. Because here's, here's the thing, beloved, don't, don't miss this. Here's the thing. Those that are concerned about whether or not they've committed a sin like this have a conscience that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. See, the, 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 uh, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin of such a hard heart towards the Lord. And if, you, if you're sensitive, Lord, like, have I done this? Have I done this in the past? Rest assured today that you have not committed it. You may have committed some other sins, but sins that are forgivable. Sins that once brought to the, the, to the Christ will be covered by his mercy. That will be received and wiped clean. You'll be, you'll, you'll be saying, you're forgiven. Let's move on in love. I'm not holding that against you any longer. If you're worried that, I've, uh, that you've committed this, let me assure you, you have not. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. This is not by, by missing something that God might have done by the Holy Spirit and, and you attributed it to something else. Let me just say, if you, are, if, if, if you are sensitive to these things, God is still at work in you. God, God by his spirit is still at work in your heart. But this is a life, this is a heart that is so, so hardened towards the Lord that they've just outright rejected Christ. Not just ambivalent towards him, but rebelling and accusing and attacking and attributing the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. This is an eternal sin. Beloved, this, this, this is sobering, isn't it? This is kind of heavy, heavy stuff here. But beloved, there is still hope, is there not? We, we want to be careful. We don't want to be throwing this around here. I, I, you know, what, what's, what's even interesting about the way that Jesus uh, uh, confronts them with this is he issues this sober warning, but he, he isn't necessarily accusing them of committing it, even here. He's just warning them, saying, hey, y'all are getting pretty dangerously close here. 
Now, they may have crossed the line, and they may continue in this and, 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 and be guilty of this. But it's here just as a warning. So let us be cautious before we just like start throwing it around and accusing others of doing it. But let us be sober-minded. Let us be cautious. Let us be warned. If you find yourself here today questioning these things, wondering who Jesus is, well, here it is before you. Is he a liar? Where does his power come from? Consider his influence. Where is Christ from? Is he claiming to be God, yet he's really delusional, maybe even demonic? I think not. I think not. I think he is who he says he is, and I think he is, is, he is who his miracles prove him to be, is he not? I think he is. I think he is the Lord. He is not a liar. He is not a lunatic, but he is our Lord. Let's carry on into verse 31. Let's consider our allegiance. Let's consider here our allegiance finally. We're, we're coming back now to the other side of the bread. We're back at Jesus' family. They're, they're standing outside here. Look at verse 31. His mother, his brothers came. They're standing outside and they send someone in to call him. They're, they're yelling at him. There's a crowd here and they're trying to, to get him to come close. Students, you ever had an embarrassing parent moment like this? Right? You're like maybe after school and, and uh, you're with all your friends. There's a crowd around and mom and dad are standing over there and they're like, hey, Blair Bear, over here. <laughs> it's mortifying, right? embarrassing. You're calling for him, all that. Well, this is probably not a moment quite like that. I bet Jesus didn't get embarrassed about a whole lot of anything, actually. But you remember, they're concerned, right? We kind of come back here. He's, the, the Mark is writing something. He includes this little bit about a family, and then this massive teaching point here about who Christ is, where he's from. He's from the Lord, and now he's wrapping it up with, uh, with returning to his family. They think he's gone crazy. They think he's gone off his rocker, so they're back. They're, they're trying to seize him. And I know maybe some of you have experienced this even as a Christ follower. You're not claiming to be God, but now that you're claiming Christ and following him, this may have drawn some, some, uh, uh, some crazy looks from your family. You're a new creation now. You make decisions differently. You spend your time and your talent, your money differently than you did before. You hang out with certain people that, that you didn't used to. You say things differently. You dress differently. And God's done a great work in you. And now your, your family, those that are close to you are like, Who's this person? What's, what's going on? Like, you're, you're, you're different. Is this guy, is he crazy? Is he out of his mind? Is she, is she like, who, is she a part of a cult? Have you ever experienced stuff like this? Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand, but, but, but I know that I, it's, it's a real experience. And if you find yourself in this, let me just offer some hope also in the midst of this. I want to just fast forward the scene a little bit from Jesus' life here. They think he's crazy. But what do we see in Acts 1? After Jesus ascended, the, the disciples, they go to the upper room to pray, and who's there with him? His mother and his brothers and his sisters. And so even here, where they think he's crazy early on, it takes a few years, but eventually they come to faith. And not only that, but a couple of his brothers, James and Jude, you see them listed again in Mark 6, 3. James and Jude write two of the books of our New Testament. Named after them, James and Jude, those are part from Jesus' brothers. They actually become leaders in the early church. And so it takes a while. 
They initially think he's crazy, but as they begin to see and God has mercy and grace upon them, they become Christ followers as well. And then they are used in a very profound way for the, for the kingdom of God, for the church, even now having a reverberating effect as we read books like James and Jude. And so I'm not going to say like your, your brothers may not write books of the Bible. Like they're not going to. The canon is closed. But be hope-filled for those in your family that today think you're loony. That through your patient, persistent, faithful love towards them. And in, you, uh, in your uh, kindness towards them, in your winsome witness, that God just may do a work. It may take years. It may take decades for him to get through to your parents, through your siblings, through your kids but he may just use you to be an agent in their salvation as they see the impact that God has had in your life, the influence that your allegiance to him as Lord. It may be hurtful now, but stay hopeful for the days ahead. Don't, don't, don't lose heart. But back to our scene here. Back to our scene. In verse 32, look, somebody comes, they inform Jesus, hey, Jesus is looking for you. And what does he do? He uses it as a teachable moment to give us a biblical perspective about the family of faith. He uses this uh, as, as, a, as an example to say, oh, well, who is my family? And let, let's be clear here by him saying that these, he, he says, this is my like blood family. And, but he's saying and redefining this, let's just be clear about what he's not doing here. He's not rejecting his mother and brothers. He's not abandoning them. He's not frustrated or mad. He's not walking away from them. He's not casting them out. On the contrary, actually. Rather, he's, he's opening up the doors into his family. He's saying, my family is much bigger than just blood. See, the, see, the only bond stronger than blood is faith. The only bond stronger than blood is faith. More eternal, more, more secure is the faith that we share in Jesus Christ. A faith, a bond, a family a bond that we share with people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Of people who are alive now and who were alive before us and will come after us that share this faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's our global family that Jesus is really opening up the doors here. He's saying, who are my mother and brother? He says, these, these among me, those that do the will of God. And this, beloved, is why we, why, why we invest so much in our church family, why we, why we even call it a family, why we invest in our small groups is because more than just a group, more than a gathering of people, more than just like affinity clubs that we all like, like motorcycles or the Packers or whatever, is no, we are bound in Christ. And this is why he says, whoever does the will of God is part of the family. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, what he's saying, whoever is saved, who's ever repented of their sin and believed on Christ, they are a part of my family. They are doing the will of God. That is God's will. He desires that all should be saved and not perish. And so those that are doing the will of God are saved. Doing the will of God is somebody who is sanctified. Somebody who is sanctified, who's bearing fruit, who's growing in their faith, persevering through difficulty, that is giving evidence of the Holy Spirit alive, alive in us. That is they who do the will of God, who delight to do the commandments of the Lord, who see them not as burdensome, but as joyful, protecting commandments. 
See, it is these who do the will of God, those who are growing in Christ. See, you're, you're not doing the will of God if you're the same person that you were before you were saved. Like if you're living life, if your life doesn't look any different than your coworkers, if the decisions that you make are, are no different than your unbelieving friends or coworkers, you, you're probably not doing the will of God because the call to come to Christ is a, is a radical change in how we live our life and the way that we look. Doing the will of God is very different than following the course of this world. Those that are a part of the family, those that do the will of God are those who are saved, those who are sanctified, and those who are submitted. Submitted to whom? To the lordship of Christ and the authority of his word. See, Christ is not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's our Lord. He's our boss. He's our, our master. He's our CEO of our life. We make decisions. Yes, we lead our life. We're not just always influenced and impacted by the ways of the world around us, but we're not the CEO of our life. Christ is. He is our Lord. We are submitted to him, living a very different life. It is these, beloved, it is these who are doing the will of God. The will of God is not just like some secret thing. It's not like some like special knowledge that we're just waiting for us, right? The will of God has been laid out for us very clearly in the scripture, through his commandments, through his word. He's given us wisdom and he's given people around us to help us as we make Christ our highest allegiance. As we make him our highest priority, he is our Lord, is he? Is he your Lord? Is he your highest allegiance today? How would we know? How do we know when Christ is our highest allegiance? It's a great question. One that I hope you ponder this week. One that I hope you wrestle over. One that I hope uh, provokes good discussion in your small group this week. Because I pray that he is. I pray that he is. You can be sure of it. There's no reason today to leave unsure that he is your Lord, that he is your master, that he has saved you. There's no reason to be unsure. Jesus has gone to great lengths so that you could be sure. He eventually laid down his life, didn't he? To set us free, to plunder the strong man's goods. Jesus did that that we might be his, that we might be adopted into his family. Consider today your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Is he just a nice thought, a convenient addition to your life? Or is he your life, your entire life, your Lord? Let us not be indifferent. Let us not be apathetic. And oh God, would you awaken us out of our apathy and indifference? And may we be a people that say, yes, Jesus, I will follow. I will follow. I will surrender. I will go. You're the boss. Here I am. You're the father. You are my Lord. Here am I. Here am I. I want to follow you. I want to do your will. Let's pray now and consider these things.